0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Good to see you here for our Adventist history class. And um, we've covered a lot of ground in the history of Adventism so far. And the the topic for today, I believe, is a very important one. We are going to be discussing the history of True education, especially in the context of Madison College. Now, how many of you are familiar with the history of Madison College? I'd be interested by a show of hands. A few of you. And so um, I'm looking forward to going through that. Um, Why don't we have a word of prayer and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the study of history that helps us to remember how you've led in the past and gives us an idea of how to move forward in the future. We pray that you would be with us as we study the history of true education and of Madison, and may it inspire us to follow those principles in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into the details of Madison per se, I want to point out what the principles of true education are. And I think we, we probably all know this. You know, it's physical, mental, and spiritual. Now, some of you may know, but in the first angel's message itself, we see the concept of true education. Do you know that? Well, in Revelation 14, we're very familiar with the passage that says, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, if you look at it carefully, <clears throat> when we study the concept of fearing God, giving glory to Him, and worshiping Him, We can see the concept of true education. First of all, we know the verse that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is that? That's mental. And then, with giving glory to God, whatsoever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, that's physical. And then, of course, worship Him. That's spiritual. So the concept of physical, mental, and spiritual coming together as a complete unit is seen in the first angel's message, which God gave to His remnant people. So clearly, true education is something that God cares deeply about in the group of people that He raised up to give the three angels' messages. Does that make sense? If he's going to have a group of people to give the three angels messages, he needs to have a group of people that put together the package of true education, which teaches physical, mental, and spiritual education combined as a complete unit and not separated from each other. And as we're going to see today, God has done his best to work through people in the past to make that a reality. Now, one other thing that I want to point out When we see the principles of true education lived out in the lives of of the students who follow these principles, these are the characteristics that we will see in our young people today. This is found in education, a book. It's not a compilation. It's a book that Ellen White wrote about true education. Education, page 57. the history of Joseph and Daniel is an illustration of what he will do for those who yield themselves to him and with a whole heart seek to accomplish his purpose. And then here's the famous quote, the greatest one of the world is the one of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true as as duty, as needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. That's what true education produces. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Not necessarily to go for the best job that sacrifices good principles. But such a character is not the result of accident. It is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. A noble character is the result of self-discipline. Of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature, the surrender of self for the service of love to God and man. So, what we're going to see today, we're going to see in the history of really two key men who set out to live their lives according to the principles of true education and to be as true as duty as the needle is to the pole, to call sin by its right name, and to be used of God in a mighty way, and in such a mighty way that we're still talking about them today over a hundred years later. And may it be said of us that we would be as faithful as the people we're going to talk about today. Now, in the background of this context of true education, one of our first Adventist educators was named Goodloe Harper Bell. He was in Battle Creek, and he was the first Adventist, one of the first at least, of, of the Adventist educators who had the concept of making the Bible the centerpiece of education, and... He taught other courses associated with the Bible, including geography and arithmetic and physiology and all those kind of things. And half the day was spent with the study of those subjects and how it related to the Bible. And the other half of the day was spent in physical labor. So there you have physical, mental, and spiritual as a complete package in one full day every day. Sounds pretty reasonable, huh? Now, unfortunately... There were other Adventist educators in Battle Creek at the same time who were convinced that an education in the classics was more important and that studying books all day, learning foreign languages and basically becoming experts in Latin and and languages that aren't used was more important than getting out and learning how to plant a garden and build a house, or things like that. And Goodloe Harper Bell was one of the first people to fight that battle. And I bring that up just to show that there was a tension developing from the very beginning of Adventist education as to whether or not to have a complete package of physical, mental, and spiritual, or to just focus primarily on the mental. And a little bit of spiritual, and very little physical. And that tension continued. Now, around what's very interesting is in the year 1888, which we've studied about already in this class, the year that's famous for the general conference session where righteousness by faith was first presented in clarity to the church, And Ellen White said that the Lord was beginning to pour out the latter rain through that message. Well, in that very year of 1888, she invited a young man named Percy McGann to live in her house. And it was at the same time that Percy McGann became very good friends with E.A. Sutherland. Now, Percy McGann had just moved from Ireland to the United States, and Sutherland was from the United States. And they quickly struck up a friendship, a friendship that would last the remainder of their lives. And it was, a, I believe, a God-ordained friendship. And it was, um, from that time, some very significant things started to happen. First of all, <clears throat> Ellen White personally gave instruction to Sutherland and McGann about the message of righteousness by faith that Sutherland, or that Jones and Wagner had been teaching. So Sutherland and McGann, imagine this, these are young men, probably in their, I forget what year they were born, but they were probably in their 20s at this time. I could be wrong, but they were young men. And Ellen White is personally instructing them about the message of righteousness by faith. Now how many of you would have appreciated that opportunity? Now, what's interesting is we could say, well, man, if I had had that opportunity, I would have stayed straight to the course. But remember, John Harvey Kellogg lived with Ellen White, and look what happened to him. And we're going to talk about that with Adrian next week, or actually two weeks. But McGann lives with Ellen White, Sutherland and McGann become good friends. And she educates them on the principles of righteousness by faith. And she also takes the opportunity to educate them on the principles of true education. And Sutherland, again, bought bought this as a complete package. The The message of righteousness by faith. The power of an indwelling Christ that gives us power to live a righteous life by faith. And from that principle, we live out the principles of righteousness by incorporating true education into our life, not just in the classroom, but in everything that we do in our life. And so Sutherland and McGann became really the pioneers, if you will, of true education. Now, what happened shortly after this... E.A. Sutherland was called to become the head of Walla Walla College. So Percy McGann stayed at Battle Creek and started teaching in the Bible department and and some other courses at Battle Creek. And E.A. Sutherland goes out to the Northwest to help start this new college, Walla Walla. Now, another interesting point to be made here is that when Sutherland and McGann were in Battle Creek they were influenced very strongly by Dr. Kellogg. And, you know, we know that Dr. Kellogg had a bad end, but we also know that, as we studied in the health message, that Dr. Kellogg did a lot of good things. And one of the things that he did was that he convinced Sutherland and McGann that a vegetarian diet was the only way to go. So E.A. Sutherland goes out to Walla Walla, and he shows up and he says, okay, we are going to follow... The counsels of the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy according to everything it says. No exceptions. So first off, our cafeteria is going to become vegetarian. So Walla Walla becomes the first vegetarian cafeteria because E.A. Sutherland says we're going to follow the counsels of the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. Now I should back up for just a minute and say when Sutherland and McGann were gaining instruction from Ellen White, they made a pact with each other Where they said, for the rest of our lives, we are going to live our lives by every word of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, no matter what it costs us. And so, here you see Sutherland implementing that principle when he shows up in Walla Walla. Living by every word of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And that's part of true education. And it's a powerful example. And I might dare say that we wouldn't be talking about Sutherland and McGann if they hadn't followed those principles. So... Sutherland goes out to Walla Walla, implements the principles of true education, and if you read the story, and <clears throat> some of the story of his time in Walla Walla is in this book, God's Beautiful Farm, which primarily talks about Madison. If you, if you don't have the book, you should get it, and you should definitely read it. <clears throat> Sutherland would get up at 4.30 in the morning, and by 5.30 in the morning, he was working with the students on cutting wood because they needed wood for their fireplaces to keep the place warm. And so it wasn't that Sutherland and McGann, and we'll see this at Madison, it wasn't that they said, this is how we should do true education. Okay, students, go out and do it. And then they sat back by and just read a nice book or hung out with their family and did nothing. They were actively involved with the students in the physical labor. And the mental and the spiritual exercises as well. Well, Walla Walla became such a success. And by the way, when, when Sutherland showed up, much of Walla Walla's property had been sold off against Ellen White's counsel. She said to keep a large amount of property out in the country so that you could have plenty of agriculture. Well, the leaders of Walla Walla, before Sutherland got there, sold off a lot of the property to get out of debt. And when he got there, he said, we need to get that property back, and he ended up buying back most of the property that they had sold off so that they could follow the principles. And one of the other principles that Sutherland followed was, we don't go into debt. So the spirit of prophecy in the Bible are very clear, owe no man anything, don't go into debt. The the servant is is, or the lender is, I'm sorry, the borrower is servant to the lender, and so Sutherland said, we are going to only build things and buy things as we have the money to do so. We're not going to borrow large sums of money and go into debt. That's going to kill our schools. So Sutherland put all those principles into action, and things were such a success That by the 1897 general conference session, the leaders of the general conference said, hey, we got to get this guy to come back to Battle Creek and take take over our school. We're $90,000 into debt. What happened here? Now, $90,000 in debt in 1897 was a lot of money. And it had been severely mismanaged. And Ellen White had encouraged Battle Creek to put their school out into the country And instead, they followed Kellogg's advice and stayed in the city, sold off most of their property, and they're still $90,000 in debt. So things went from bad to worse. And so Sutherland shows up, and I might add that he brought back with him a young lady by the name of Bessie DeGraw, who partway through her college in Battle Creek had gone out to Walla Walla to join him, and when she went out to Walla Walla, she became an advocate for true education. And she was a key worker that we'll talk about. So Sutherland and his wife and Bessie DeGraw come back from Walla Walla to Battle Creek. And from the very outset, they wanted to move Battle Creek College to the country. And Ellen White said, wait just a little bit. She was in Australia at the time. She said, the brethren aren't ready to move yet. Give it a little time, and in time you can do so. So Sutherland and McGann bided their time, but one of the first and most famous things that they did at the Battle Creek College was they saw that the way the students were getting their physical activity was through the playing of competitive sports. Now this can be a, a raw nerve perhaps an Adventist thought today, <clears throat> but Ellen White had already written a letter to the prior president of Battle Creek, W.W. W. Prescott, about how bad it was that a football game had been played between the students of Great Britain and the students of the United States. And it had created a huge uproar on campus and, and all of that. And so Ellen White said, this is bad. That shouldn't have happened. So Prescott said, yeah, you're probably right. We won't do that anymore. But they still had a tennis court on the campus. So Sutherland and McGann took out a plow, and one of them led the team of horses, and the other led the plow, and they plowed up the tennis court and started a garden. Probably wasn't so popular with the students, but hey, they did it. <clears throat> and um, by 1901, at the 1901 general conference session, the general conference session voted to allow Battle Creek College to move to the country and no sooner than the vote took place Sutherland and McGann had the railroad company lined up and they had 16 boxcars and they moved the whole school out to Berrien Springs to its current location. Uh, they renamed the school Emanuel Missionary College it's now Andrews University. Now <clears throat> once they got there they really started implementing the principles of true education and they emphasized The physical, the mental, and the spiritual, half of the day was classes, half of the day was work. And one of the other things they implemented was they started offering classes in a different way. So instead of offering six classes all at once, and it would take you three quarters or whatever, two semesters to get through an entire course, you would take one or two courses per quarter and you would be done with that course by the end of that quarter. So if you could only afford to come to school for one quarter, you would have an entire class done by the end of that quarter. So it was more effective. You would learn the class better and that was another thing that they tried. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> you'll have to remember that this tension that we talked about earlier that started with Goodloe Harper-Bell was continuing because some of the teachers from Battle Creek College came out to Emanuel Missionary College and they missed teaching their Latin. That, that was fun. They could show up and teach their Latin and then they could go home the rest of the day and and things were p- pretty nice. But now they had to go out and help build the new buildings for the campus or work in the garden and, and they were working twice as much for the same amount of pay and, and it wasn't as fun. And so this tension developed between Sutherland and McGann and some of the teachers on the campus about how to implement educational principles on the campus. And things became somewhat heated. And um, Ellen White, who was supportive of what Sutherland and McGann were doing, was falsely quoted as saying that she had turned against Sutherland and McGann. So things started to turn vicious, and the rumor mill started heating up, and McGann's wife grew sick and very ill under the strain of the criticism that her husband and Sutherland were under. And in fact, she became so sick that she died. And Ellen White said that that her blood was in the hands of those who had wrongly criticized Sutherland and McGann and who had falsely said that Ellen White had turned on them. And the the whole thing reached ahead in 1904, the Lake, the Lake Union Conference constituency meeting, that's when Mrs. McGann actually died. And it was then that th- things reached a boiling point <clears throat> And Sutherland and McGann offered their resignations. And they said on record that they could no longer work with the General Conference Brethren. Now, before (coughs) we say, wow, well, the General Conference Brethren must have been evil and Sutherland and McGann must have been 100% correct, we need to look at a few key facts here. (coughs) Ellen White stood up at that meeting and defended Sutherland and McGann and said they should have received more support. However, she also rebuked Sutherland and McGann for the rashness of their resignation and for saying that they couldn't work with the brethren. And one thing that you have to realize is that A.G. Daniels, who was the president of the General Conference, had come down on the right side of the Kellogg apostasy. Now what may surprise you is, Initially, Sutherland and McGann sided with Kellogg because Kellogg had been this tremendous influence. He taught them about the health message and the vegetarian diet and all of that. And so when you understand this picture, A.G. Daniels, humanly speaking, was more likely to have a negative attitude towards Sutherland and McGann because Sutherland and McGann were siding with Kellogg. And Sutherland and McGann had a negative viewpoint towards A.G. Daniels because A.G. Daniels still ate a meat-based diet, or he would eat meat. And so there were issues here that weren't resolved. And so A.G. Daniels was absolutely right that Kellogg was wrong, and Sutherland and McGann were right about the principles of true education. So Ellen White supported Sutherland and McGann for their hard work. And she said they should have been given more support for what they did at Emanuel Missionary College for following the principles of true education. But they should also try to work with the brethren better. (coughs) Now, with the context of their resignations, this is where they moved to Madison College in 1904. And they had seen that there was a need for a work in the South. (coughs) And... Ellen White encouraged them to come down and check things out. And Sutherland and McGann thought that they would work in eastern Tennessee or the western Carolinas. Now, I grew up in about 45 minutes north of Nashville, Tennessee, um, in a small town called Portland. So not too far from where Madison was. And I can tell you that in the early 1900s, eastern Tennessee or western Carolina... There was not much there. And um, that's where Sutherland and McGann wanted to go. It was going to be way out in the country, and they were going to get way out there and just do the Lord's work and get away from all the troubles they'd been facing. So they show up in Nashville where Ellen White was and her son Edson, and they boarded the Morning Star and go up the famous ride on the Cumberland River, um, a river that I've crossed many times, and... The boat mysteriously breaks down at a place called Neely's Bend near a small town called Madison, Tennessee. So they all have to get off the boat and they come out and they view this horrible looking property with all these rocks. And Sutherland and McGann knew a little bit about farming and they saw the soil and they are like, boy, this would be the worst place to ever plant any crops I've ever seen. And Ellen White says, hey, this is the place that you are going to have your new school. And they're like, oh yeah? I don't think so. And Ellen White said, well I'm sorry boys, but this is the place the Lord has shown me that you are going to start your school. And now Sutherland and McGann have a problem. Because remember, they have committed their lives to following every word of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And now their wishes are running right into conflict with the spirit of prophecy. And so if you read the story, Sutherland and McGann sat down on those ugly rocks on the property and wept. But they surrendered their decision to the Lord and they said, Lord, if this is what you want us to do, we're going to do it. And so they started the school. They paid $13,000 or so for the property the person raised the price and Ellen White said, Look, I'm not going to let, let the devil beat us out of this property for $1,000. We're going to pay the extra price. And they did. And they got the property. And they started with a small nucleus. Sutherland and McGann. and Haskell, if you're familiar with him, he held the original deed to the property. He was supportive Also, there was a woman by the name of Nellie Droulard. She was in her 60s. Her husband had just passed away. They'd been longtime missionaries in Africa. And Ellen White told her, she said, Mrs. Droulard, if you give the rest of your life to the support of this work, you will accomplish more in the last years of your life than you did in the first 60. And she was one of the key people who helped to provide financial oversight and guidance. And she was one of the key leaders of that group. They, they started off with very humble beginnings, 14 students. The faculty were making $13 a month. Imagine that. They were living in a barn. They used um, fruit boxes for their, for their clothing drawers. I mean, this was, this was roughing and toughing if there ever was such a thing. It was definitely Frontier Mission-style work. But, and, and their, their first winter, their, their diet consisted mostly of milk and cornbread almost every day. And Sutherland would tell the students and the faculty, This is the Lord providing manna for us to get us through the wilderness experience. And nobody complained. They all cheerfully accepted their condition. And as time went on, Madison became a shining example of what true education could become. They revitalized that poor property into hundreds of acres of orchards and gardens and of food that was some of the best food in the area. And it became a shining example of what you can do when you follow physical, mental, and spiritual education. Their courses were for half a day. Their work was for half a day. Now there's another key element that we have to talk about here with Madison. Madison was the first self-supporting institution. And it became the first self-supporting institution in the context of the tension with Sutherland and McGann and Daniels and some of the other GC brethren. Now Ellen White knew with that tension the Brethren would look on Madison as a renegade operation. And yet she was telling them to move forward. Now, you would think, okay, well, that's good. Ellen White's telling them to move forward, so the Brethren are going to accept it, right? Well, wrong. She knew that because plenty of her counsel had been disregarded in the 1888 situation, and Kellogg was starting to undermine her work. So she knew that something more Decided needed to be done to give legitimacy to Madison. And this is what is very interesting to me. Ellen White told Sutherland again if you start your work here, I will serve as a member of the board. And she did. Now, what's the significance of Ellen White serving as a member of the board for Madison? It was the only board she ever served on. She was the pro- God's prophet to the remnant church, and she only served on one board, and it was the first self-supporting institution that ever started. So what Ellen White was saying is, God is ordaining the beginning of self-supporting work. And he is showing how to do it through a blueprint called Madison College. So the brethren, of course, provided opposition, Daniel's and the others, would fight Sutherland and McGann. They voted in GC Executive Committee to prevent people from donating money to Madison without their authorization and all sorts of things. And Ellen White would send them letters of rebuke saying you were not being led by the Spirit of God when you voted that. That was wrong. Um, You should be supporting those men and helping them to raise money for their school because they're doing God's work and to vote or to authorize votes to say that money going to Madison needs to come through you is not of the Lord's order. And so Ellen White fought for the self-supporting work till she died in 1915, and she served on its board until one year before it died. And so Ellen White was one of the key leaders of Madison, and she continued to provide writings and support and all of that. Now, another key event happened in the history of Madison, Um, A few years into Madison's development, Ellen White shows up. Everyone's excited that Ellen White's in town. They have a picnic. They're sitting on a hill on the campus. And she says, for everyone to hear, this would be the perfect place to build a sanitarium. And they all looked at her like she was crazy. What are you talking about? We're barely making it. How is this going to happen? She said, where's your faith? So they went to the chapel. They prayed over it. And after they prayed, they got out the horse and the plow and they plowed out the area for a foundation. And within a few weeks of that action, someone showed up and said, Hey, I hear that you have some people here that offer hydrotherapy to help people get better. Can you help me? And Nellie Drulard said, "Uh, we aren't really ready for that, but the man insisted. So they took him in, and they nursed him back to health. He went back to Nashville and said, these people make you get well. And before they knew it, they had more people than they could handle. And that was the beginning of the medical missionary work there at Madison. So the Lord was in the work there, and Madison continued to grow, and... It grew and it grew. Now, one thing that happened of significance, McGann left Madison in 1915 to come to Loma Linda to become the dean of the College of Medical Evangelists. And, of course, that really devastated Sutherland. Of course, he went on. But that was a tough blow to Madison. But they kept a close alliance and when CME, or College of medical, medical Evangelists, nearly closed, Madison had a key donor by the name of Lyda Scott who wanted to give a large donation to Madison and Sutherland and said, hey, instead of giving it to us, give it to CME because they need the money. And if they raise up medical missionary doctors, they'll send their doctors back to our sanitarium to work. And so it will benefit Madison in the long run. And that's what ended up happening. And so CME and Madison had an alliance. Now... As time went on, Madison strengthened in its golden years. And what's interesting is the golden years of Madison are known as 1930 to 1950. Now, what's strange about that? That was the time of the Great Depression. And yet, Madison hit its peak during the Great Depression. You would think that a self-supporting institution would bottom out in the Great Depression. And in fact, it peaked. So when people say, well, self-supporting work, it's just going to go under in, you know, times of economic duress. If that self-supporting institution, or even if it's not self-supporting, is following the principles of God, God will bless it. And he blessed Madison. And as best we can tell, not one Madison College graduate went unemployed during the Great Depression. Now, why is that? Because the students of Madison were trained not only to know how to run a garden, they could build a house, they could do any number of practical skills that was required to get by in life. So if this job shuts down, oh, I, well, okay, that's dried up, but hey, I can do this for you instead. And so you just keep right on moving because you're trained to do many different things because you get a four-year education, not only in learning book knowledge, but how to live a practical life, and how to support yourself, and to earn a living, so that when times get tough, no matter what happens, hey, if your job as a doctor dries up, hey, I can do your plumbing for you, or I can build a house for you, or I can do whatever for you. That's true education. They could do anything you asked them to, because they were trained to do so. Sutherland and McGann were simply following the blueprint that God gave Ellen White in the spirit of prophecy. Now, we know that Madison eventually closed There's different viewpoints as to why it closed. It is true that they um, were having trouble financially maintaining their nursing school according to the standards of the state of of Tennessee. They started an accredited nursing program, and ultimately it was the the standards of the state of Tennessee that they were no longer able to maintain financially, and that's what led the school to close. Now... (coughs) While Madison itself closed, it's important to see the effect that Madison has had on the Adventist church. It was at Madison that the first ASI meeting ever happened. So what happened was, Madison would send out its workers to start other schools and so they started schools all over the South and other places. And they got the idea, hey, why don't we come back together and talk about what we're doing at our various schools, talk about what's, what works and how we can collaborate on our ideas together to strengthen our self-supporting work. And so that started at Madison, and eventually it became known as the Adventist self-supporting institution with all these groups coming together and it was at Madison eventually ASI has evolved to be called Adventist Laban Services and Industries but ASI started from the influence of Madison and Madison and we know that ASI we know what ASI is and ASI has a very positive effect on the church even today Um, And it all started with Madison and the vision of Sutherland and McGann. Also, many different schools started in the South, other self-supporting institutions. You think of places like Wildwood, Uche Pines, there's a number of academies in the South. Actually the academy that I grew up at, Highland Academy, that started from Madison. All of those places were started by students who trained at Madison and they said, we're going to go out and we're going to start another school just like that. And the Spirit of Madison has lived on. And there's schools today, even places like Watchita Hills Academy in Arkansas that are following that blueprint. Now, when you look at the spirit of Madison and what Sutherland and McGann went through to start that, what you see with Sutherland and McGann is the spirit of the early pioneers. You see the spirit of James and Ellen White, Joseph Bates, Hiram Edson, who gave everything to advance God's work. Sutherland and McGann did the same thing. And the people at Madison, they did the same thing. And I'm going to take personal license to say that God used them to save the church at a critical time. If they hadn't done what they did, The current in the church at that time was to undermine the authority of inspiration in Ellen White. And that current has continued to this very day. If you look at many Seventh-day Adventists, the way education and organization and many things are run undermines the authority of inspiration. Now God still works through the organization. I'm not saying to leave the organization by any means. God still works through organization. But in many ways, her authority is undermined. And so what God did, he says, okay... Ellen White, I'm going to speak through you. You're going to serve as a member of the board of our charter self-supporting institution, and these people are going to preserve the integrity of the message that I've raised to finish the work. And the spirit of Madison lives on today. There are still people who will give everything to preserve the integrity of Adventism, to preserve the writings of Ellen White, to preserve the authority of the Bible, and to do everything that they can to be part of God's finishing work. So the question is, what about us? Are we like Sutherland and McGann? Are we going to accept the message of righteousness by faith and from those principles bring in true education to our life so that it could be said of us that we are men and women who will stand for right no matter what, that we're true as duty as the needle to the pole, that we will call sin by its right name, we're not worried about the consequences, we're going to follow God no matter what. Are we like that? That's the principles of true education. And why is that important? Because we see the principles of true education in the three angels' messages. That's part of our identity and mission. And there's also another system of education. It's called the Babylonian education. And in the third angel's message, we see that there is another group of people who worship another way. And they receive the mark of the beast. And what that suggests is if we allow Babylonian educational principles to affect our lives, we're preparing ourselves to receive the mark of the beast. And so God had to raise up a group of people named Sutherland and McGann to preserve true education, to preserve his message so that God will have a group of people at the end of time who will receive the seal of God. And may we be faithful to the spirit of Madison. You know, God doesn't need to see another Madison come and fail. He needs to see a group of people come up and finish the work. Last Christmas I went home and I went through the grounds of Madison and there's only one building left from that original place. But Madison lives on and what it did will live till the second coming of Jesus. And I pray that many of us, if not all of us here, will be like Sutherland's and McGann's to help finish God's work. So... May we be faithful to that calling. That's my prayer. And I encourage you, study more about the history of Madison. Madison, God's Beautiful Farm. It's written by Ira Gish and Harry Christman. You can get it from Teach Services. Powerful story. and. Um